Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion by what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with his whole household, gave alms generously to the poor, to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is in the house by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down in its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by the holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited him to, to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you like always for your word that reveals to us, first and foremost, who is Jehovah God? How awesome is Jehovah God? What is our relationship with this mighty, incredible, redeeming, creating God who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son? Father, overwhelm us with your sovereignty, with your providence, how you sustain the gospel, not just from nation to nation, but from soul to soul. Teach us the mysteries of your ways, we ask God, in Christ's precious name. Amen. A man named Cornelius. I just lost my sermon. Woohoo! Came back. Chapter 10 of Acts is the fulfillment of a command by Christ to his apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentile world, the Gentiles and the whole world. Chapter 10 is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the whole Gentile world. And as I've been sharing, you and I are sitting here because of that. 
You and I sang today and I sang with joy in my heart because I am redeemed. I sang because I have hope. I sang because I have peace. I sang because the world is morally corrupt. It has no desire to know truth. And we sit in a Christian church and we are blessed to have revealed truth. We know what life is all about. We do. Don't ever take it for granted. That Jesus Christ is the truth. We are here worshiping God. And it was paid for by Christ. Chapter 10 really ends in chapter 11 verse 18. The 66 verses. It's the longest narrative we have in the book of Acts. Which has a lot of long narratives. It's the longest one. It's a chapter and a half long. And it really reads like, uh, like a play. Depending on how you read it, it could have five or six acts, and I'm going to treat it that way, and I'm going to go through it over the next two or three weeks. But Luke is being strategic in his construction. He's showing now how the gospel first reached out to the Gentile world. And not just to the Gentile ears, but how God prepared Gentile hearts to receive the gospel. Up until now, this point, only to the Jews and the Samaritans heard and was saved. Now the gospel goes to the rest of the world. The supernatural events that take place in these 66 verses, we only read 23 today, uh, uh, they're very important. First, it goes to show that, first and foremost, that God is directing the forward momentum of the gospel of his son. This is not about brainstorming. This wasn't the apostles. Let's get together. How can we save the world? Nothing to do with that. God is directing everything that's transpiring in this text. Like it is in the whole book of Acts, like it's doing from Genesis to Revelation. God is behind the scenes, moving this all forward. It shows God's sovereignty over men's lives. It goes to show God's sovereignty over uh, the providence of the message of Jesus Christ. It goes to show God's sovereignty over the human heart. God has sovereignty and jurisdiction over the soul. And ultimately, it's God the Father who glorifies Christ, the Son. John 12, 28 says it this way. Father, glorify your name, says Jesus. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. We are only the means God uses to glorify His Son. But make no mistake about it. Every soul saved, every soul that sings, every soul redeemed, every soul with hope is all by God's grace. He glorifies the Son. No man. Get out of the way. As Psalm 115 says, To you, O God, to you alone be the glory, not unto us. This is what Acts is about. It's one of the sub-themes of Acts. And we see it clearly in these 66 verses. We see it tonight. We'll speak about it a little bit. Many themes run through this whole section. I will deal with some of these themes as we go through. Uh, God's sovereignty. God's providence. How God sustains. Uh, God governs the human heart. God sees and he knows everything. God's omnipotence. Uh, omniscience. His omnipresence. And it, they're all there. All these sub-themes are there. We're going to pick them apart. We'll use them. I'll deal with it more on application when they come. I have chosen, as I said, to go through these 66 verses slowly for the sake of observing and absorbing every nuance of the rich understanding of God. I want to know who God is. 
I love to share Christ. For me not to share Christ, I might as well just give it up. If I don't have a voice in me that wants to share the Savior with a dying soul, why bother? I need to know God. I have to know God. I want to take it and wring out the Bible slowly as much as I can to drain every truth, the magnificence of God that's in there. I'm going through slowly. And as I said, these verses read like a play. The story doesn't start in Acts chapter 10, though. Something you need to know about Bible reading and Bible study and Bible understanding. What you're reading today didn't start there. It started somewhere else. I'll give you a little insight into it. In Ephesians chapter 2. If we can go there. Start in verse 11. Listen to Paul. He's writing about the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope in this world, and you were without God. Period. You're hopeless. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made both of us Jew and Gentile and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the law of Moses, which quarantined the Jew and kept out the Gentile. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances of Moses, that he might, it was all done, with something specific in mind. Listen to the wisdom of God. That he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. You see, he might make one new man in Christ. Not by law, not by legislation, not by regulations, but by Christ. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between Jews and Gentiles once and for all. I'll end there. You see, this text shows all the more how incredible these visions were. This text shows us once and for all how incredible these angelic visitations are. And how only God can prepare men's hearts for the gospel. Not just the Gentiles who were without any hope. But the Jewish preachers who were quarantined from ever associating with them. The law forbid any and all associations. Listen to what Peter says in the 28th verse of our chapter tonight. We didn't read it though, but listen to Peter. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to even visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I cannot call any person common or unclean. When we get to the book of Acts, when we get to the 10th chapter, and we see these great visitations, we were like, I would like a visitation. You know, I would like an angelic visitation. You know, I wouldn't mind having an angel of the Lord call out to me. Maybe I'll be more 
zealous for preaching. Maybe I'll be more zealous for witnessing the gospel. Maybe, maybe that's what we need. I can assure you that's not what you need. Jesus gave us all we need. Lo and behold, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Because of that, go and baptize, making disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I command. I don't need an angelic visitation. Christ has shown me all authority is his. All I have to do is proclaim all I have to do is live it. All I have to do is share it. The angelic visitations, the dreams, the trance, it's all there because Peter was so quarantined that the thought of going to the Gentiles was outside the norm. Something supernatural had to be done. Peter wasn't arrogant. Peter wasn't prideful. Peter was obedient to Moses. It was the law of hostility. It was inbred in his heart. How dare I ever associate that which is unclean. But yet he's called to go preach to them. So guess what God does? He meets him in a trance. He meets him in a vision. And guess what he's doing simultaneously? He's meeting a man named Cornelius in a dream. Don't you get it? Only God can orchestrate it. That's it. Only God can do this. This is not dream like, you know, God, I need a dream. I need a vision. I need a visitation. No, not at all. This is God's grace. These dreams, these visions, these angelic visitations, which many would like to think we can conjure up at any time, are outside our jurisdiction. They don't belong to you and I. They're God's to give as he sees fit. And we see it's only, and I'll deal with this in application later, special situations. Let's go to Act 1, Scene 1, verse 1. No, I'm going to have to drink the water first. Act 1, Scene 1, verse 1, take 2. At Caesarea, Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. We have to see Luke as the invisible narrator of our play. It's like when you go to Broadway and a play is going on and someone's narrating, you don't see who they are. That's what Luke is doing for us. He's introducing us to a man named Cornelius. You would think just another Roman name. But not really, though he's a Roman. He's a soldier. He's a centurion. He's a leader. Verse 1 tells us his position in life. The first thing we know about Cornelius is his position in life. And it's a big position. It's no small position. He's a leader of a cohort. That means a hundred men of a battalion or a legion. That was 3,000 men. History teaches us clearly that in Caesarea is the time of AD 30, about when this happened, or 30, 40, there was a legion in Caesarea holding the Pax Romana. It was keeping the peace of Rome. It was on the outskirts of Samaria. It was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. There was a lot of upheaval, upheavals at one time. It's, it's a major metropolis 
And you can rest assured that Rome is going to do everything to keep its peace. And it's here in the midst of this army, within the midst of this garrison, this legion, this battalion of 100 men who's a leader, is a man who loves God. You can't orchestrate that. Cornelius was a true soldier in the Roman army. He was a leader. He was a warrior. He was a peacekeeper. He was there to keep the rebellion down. This is no small position. It is one that is earned through loyalty of many years. He has an impeccable record. He is a man amongst hard men. He's a man of means. He has servants. But he's also a man loved by all. He had a devout soldier. And his whole household feared God. This man knew how to lead. His whole household feared God. We have this in this one verse, this great composite sketch of one of the main characters of our play. As verse 1 shows us his position in life, verse 2 shows us what he is in his heart. It says he's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. He was devout. Devout is always in reference to religion and the Mosaic law. You see, he took the precepts of the Mosaic law, its teachings, to heart. He was devout. Though he's a God-fearer, he wasn't a proselyte. He didn't get circumcised. But he heard the intent of the law. Do you know what the intent of the law is? Paul teaches us in Romans 13. Love is the fulfillment of the... Paul says it in Galatians. Where there is love, there is no need for, for law. You see, Cornelius got it. He got it. He loved God. And he loved people. Don't miss it. He was devout. Why was he devout? Because he said he feared God. A good place to start is in the fear of the Lord, the beginning of. He feared Yahweh. He feared the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose the one true God. This man is a Gentile. This man grew up in a pantheon of religions. But he had enough in his mind and his heart to recognize that the God of Israel was greater than a thousand gods in the pantheon. He chose it upon himself to be in heart a Jew and to raise up his household in heart as Jews. They loved God. He had a deep conviction that there was only one true God with only one true revelation of himself that was found in Moses. It led naturally to fulfill the law of love. Do you know, when you love God, you love. When you're loved by God, you love. The Christian doesn't need to hear over and over and over again that we need to love. It's it's intuitive. We're imbued from above. God demonstrated his love for us when he poured out the Holy Spirit in us. This man got it. He gave alms to the poor. We find out later on that he built a sanctuary. 
All this devotion to God and generosity to the poor was the product, listen, of his prayer life. He prayed continuously. You can know the truth. You can be born again. You can have 10 Bibles and 20 translations. But I'm telling you now, if you don't pray, it's all useless. Please look at me. Useless. It's all useless. Your education is useless. The experience you had as a child is useless. The experience you had here and what you did, it's all useless if you don't have a strong, continuous prayer life. As a matter of fact, you cannot say I'm devoted to God if I'm not devoted to prayer. If you want to know the barometer of your spiritual life, how's your personal prayer life? This all goes to show what drove this man from the inside out and made him what he really was. His prayer life, his vertical relationship with God is what made him horizontal with everybody else. This continuous prayer life. You have to grasp how the story is starting. You have to grasp how this play is unfolding. This introduction into this man that's going to be used mightily by God, be blessed incredibly by God, who might as well be a trillion miles away from God because even the apostles want nothing to do with him. Peter needed his own vision, his own angelic vision. He needed a visitation. He needed to go into a trance. He needed to hear three times what God makes holy is not uncommon. His prayer life pointed to his vertical relationship with God. This man got it. If you're interested, go home and read Romans chapter 2. Paul talks about such a man. For a Jew is not a Jew outwardly, but a Jew is a Jew inwardly. When a young believer does by nature what the law requires, does not he say he's a Jew? Cornelius did it. Cornelius got it. Doesn't Jesus talk about a centurion in Luke chapter 7? Lord, just just send the healing word. I too am a man under authority. Don't come under my roof. Just speak the healing word and my servant will be healed. And what does Jesus say? In all of Israel, I have not seen such faith. You see, he said that in Galilee too. You know what? They didn't like him for that. They didn't like that. They didn't like that he was... Uplifting the Gentile and not the Jewish nation. Verse 4. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. You know, when I think about this, it must have took a lifetime to grasp that the God of Israel the God that he went up at 6 in the morning to pray, at 9 in the morning to pray, at 12 in the afternoon to pray, and now at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to pray. That's how they prayed continually. They prayed at specific times of the day that were allocated to seek God as the sacrifices in the temple were going up. He prayed continually, and then all of a sudden he's like, He hears me! The God of Israel sees! The God of Israel! 
Israel. He is the God of Israel. Gives back. He's given to me. It must have been overwhelming. But also this God of Israel. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Moses. Personally revealed himself through the angel. To Cornelius. And not just that, but gives him a personal message. Sent. Now send for men to Joppa and bring one Simon who was called Peter here. He could have interjected here, Luke could have said, who really wants nothing to do with you. And he's not even wanting to come here. But he's going to be so hungry, he's going to go up to the roof while they're cooking downstairs. The smell is going to come up, and he's going to go into this trance. And there I'm going to talk to him and say, get off your prejudiced butt and go to Caesarea to a man named Cornelius and preach the gospel they're waiting for you. You've got to read in between the lines. And now send to Job or bring Simon, who is called Peter. He's slow to move. His heart's slow to learn. He's lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. We see being, he's that, being obedient in faith, he says. And when the angel had spoke to him and had departed, he called two of the servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Job. The scene starts to move real fast now. It goes from who he is, it goes to what he is, it goes to receiving the message, it's sending, it's starting to move real fast. We're going to pick this up next week. But before I go into application, I'm going to end here. You have to think of what's going on over here. Anybody like Broadway? I like Broadway. I like the way they fade things in, fade things out. One thing's fading out, a new scene is hoping up on the other stage. You know, If this was Broadway and it was a huge play, a huge theater, it was dark, there'd be one light on Cornelius. He'd be pondering, what in the world just happened? He'd be thinking about this angelic visitation that God remembered my arms and my prayers. Who is this God? And he'd be over here like the think of the statue. And then in the middle, there'd be another light shining down. It'd be on the devout soldier and two of his servants. They'd be like, what's wrong with our master? Angelic visitations? He wants me to go find a Jew? They they don't like us. So they're going through all this. And then you got Peter, the third light, and he's caught up in a trance saying, what's going on over here? Killing me? I've never cleaned, I never killed, I never eaten anything impure. I never associated with any, anybody outside the Jewish faith. And this is what's going on. It's fading to black. Go home and read what happens. How this supernatural event grabs Peter's heart. Please see that it took an almighty supernatural hand of God to get it all moving. Don't get caught up in angelic visitations. Don't get caught up in dreams. Don't get caught up in trances. Understand something. Souls were at stake. Prejudice was in the way. Hatred was in the heart. And the only thing that was going to stop it was a supernatural act of God. That's what Luke wants us to see. Not get caught up in stuff. Don't get caught up in stuff. It's about souls. It's about people. Not about stuff. Not about supernatural stuff. It's about this. 
but our need for each other. And the ongoing prejudices that are still in our own hearts. And the, uh, the ongoing unwillingness to share the gospel. We spoke about this last week. The ongoing indifference that people don't hear about faith from us. That we can just, hi, how you doing? And day after day and week after week and year after year and decade after decade. Being different to someone else's soul. God's got something just as powerful as an angelic visitation. It's the preaching of the gospel. Blessed are you who know these things and do them. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or just by hearing in faith? It's the power of the gospel that moves us. Application. God and God alone could orchestrate this kind of redeeming work. All the other parties involved have no idea of what's transpiring in another town 30 miles away, another city 30 miles away. They have no idea that God is simultaneously moving supernaturally on two sets of culturally different people. They could not be more far apart culturally, economically, religiously, spiritually than these two men. And God's having an encounter. Only God can do that. As a Christian, I'm overwhelmed. This is the kind of stuff I get on the floor when I'm praying. Praise God, this is who you are. When we pray, this is the God we pray for. When we're praying for a soul, this is the God we pray for. He listens, he hears. If he heard about the alms and the prayers of a Gentile man, how much more us who are in Christ, who said we shall do greater things than himself. Please understand, we are so lost when it comes to just how magnificent God is. It's his good pleasure to give his children the keys to the kingdom at our hands if we're willing to believe and die to self in some greater degree. Die to self in some greater degree. God is asking everyone in this room, man and woman, to die again to something. We died when we first got saved and we made hard choices. But guess what? Compromise has set in. Indifference has set in. Boredom has set in. Understand something. If you're bored and you're a Christian... You should be ashamed of yourself. We should repent in our hearts because God is not about entertainment. God is not here to keep us entertained. We are here to obey God and enjoy Him always. But Brian, I've been to church and it's it's boring. I had a guy told me that I led him to the Lord, led his wife to the Lord. I married them. I dedicated the child. I baptized them. I haven't seen you. Well, just I get nothing out of it. God gives you wisdom right away. I wasn't prepared for it. I said, because you bring nothing to the plate. You want to come in and sit down and get someone give you a big gulp and maybe some popcorn and, and you know, go to the party. I said, you got to bring love in your heart. You got to love the person sitting next to you. You got to love the lost. You got to care for somebody. This is not about God coming off out of this throne to entertain you. He said, love somebody. Bring something to the plate. And he looked at me like, 
I take great comfort in knowing that God orchestrates not just the Corneliuses and not just the Peters, but he orchestrates every personal salvation. Every soul ever saved was personally orchestrated by God. All the parties in the act, in the play, were orchestrated by God. By the hand of the providence of a sovereign God, he directed to perfectly time the day you got saved. Everything by God. Question. Do we need to have personal angelic visitations or dreams to move forward in sharing the faith? And I share it. The answer is no. The scripture has already given us. All authority belongs to Christ. All of it's there. Last week, if you weren't here, I don't say this often. If I ever said it at all, but God moved in a special way. And he laid down a gauntlet in all our lives and challenged us about sharing our faith and not being indifferent. It is our job, our joyful job, as we seek God in prayer and worship to share Christ. We don't need special angelic visitations or dreams to move us forward at all. Are special phenomena like this necessary for today? If God wants to give special phenomena, he's got no problem doing it. But I can tell you what the Bible does say. Two things. First of all, this is a special case, as we already showed, between Cornelius and Peter. And that something drastic needed to be done in the heart of Peter and the movement of Cornelius, which he did. But the New Testament never teaches us to seek dreams, angelic visitations, or trances, ever. It never teaches to seek it or expect them. It gives no inclination that we must have them to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul simply told Timothy, preach the word. If God wants to sue supernatural things, praise God. I won't waste one minute of my prayer life seeking for supernatural things when the most important thing is open up our mouths. He fills it with good things. Enough of the nonsense. Enough of the nonsense. Preach Christ. Live Christ. Have your vertical relationship so tight with God that you compelled in heart to share your faith. Just unfortunate how much time is spent, how much ink is written on these supernatural things that everybody is supposed to be walking in and produces nothing. And I'll close with this last one. How do we explain such a good man in the Bible? To read Cornelius is to be, he's a good man. That God met him because he was a good, but we know that everybody's born spiritually dead. Jesus says no one's good except God alone. We know that Cornelius was not the product of the goddess Diana or any other god in the pantheon of Greco-Roman world. He was a product of the revelation of Moses. He was devout in his understanding, no matter how rudimentary or elementary it was, 
What little he knew and understood of Moses, he gave it all. And when he gave, he gave to God. When he prayed, he prayed to God. When he led, he led for God. This is a righteous man. He was a product of divine revelation. Just goes to show you that God was behind this man, drawing him through Moses. Father, we just thank you and we love you, Father, for always clarifying so many mysteries in our midst, Father God. Your word is so clear. Your word is so powerful. Your word is divine. Your word is final. It's a final word. I thank you, God. Let us rejoice in the finality of the word of God. Showing us all things necessary for faith and salvation and life in this world, Father God. We thank you. We thank you for this testimony, this scene one in this play, Father God, and just so much more revelation of all the nuances of who you are as you work with men and that how you, uh, you stand over the gospel in providence and preservation. You stand over the message of your son to see to it that all those who are called to eternal life will believe in Jesus' name.